You know, God made all, all people, all people, whether you're Egyptian or Israeli, everything's made in God's name. And God's got an incredible end of the story where he actually brings all his people together. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about Egypt and Israel are going to be brothers again and, and going to see God for who he is together. But I want to give you a little history of Egypt and Israel because they've had a kind of a long journey together. To do that, let me give you a little timeline to kind of help you remember all the main pieces. So they think the Great Pyramid that we're going to be looking at today, was built somewhere around 2560 uh, B.C. They definitely say it's built way before the other pyramids because it is built with perfection, laser-cutting, amazing mysteries of thing. And strangely, the Great Pyramid has no Egyptian hieroglyphics in it. And the other pyramids seem like they use the Great Pyramid as a template to build theirs, and they are filled with Pharaoh's tombs and lots of hieroglyphics. Strange. Well, here's where you're going to see how the Bible interacts with that. So somewhere between 2500 and 1500 BC, the pyramids were built. <laughs> and the reason it's such a wide range is because there's so many different theories, and I didn't want to bore you with the different theories. But within those theories, you see the Bible now intersecting with Egypt. So you have Israel has a son, Joseph, that becomes a leader in Egypt and leads and helps Egypt go through a very difficult famine and get success. Then he dies and they forget about him. Instead, they enslave the Jewish people who are now living there. And so now we fast forward to 1200, 1400 B.C., and now Moses is going to exit Israel from Egyptian bondage and tyranny. And then he's going, as the Bible claims, have a Red Sea crossing of Israel out of and away from Egyptian tyranny. And then just when you think Egypt's in the background, we show up to Jesus' story with Mary and Joseph. They're escaping another tyrant, Herod, who's trying to kill them, and they have to escape to Egypt. And God calls them, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, out of Egypt. So there's a long history of the Bible intersecting with Egypt. Let's talk about the Great Pyramid to begin. So the Great Pyramid, whenever it was built, but a long time ago, it's pretty amazing, and there's so much mystery to it that there's theories and everything. Nobody knows really who built it. They don't know how they built it, and they don't know how the people who built it knew what they knew. That's why there's theories from everything from pharaohs to aliens to everything in between because of the mysteries. Here's just a couple interesting facts. There are 2.3 million stones in that pyramid. Each stone weighs two to two and a half tons. To build that thing in one generation, you'd have to place two stones every three minutes. The quarry where they think they got the stones is 500 miles away. Did they float them up the Nile? Not sure. But here's where it gets real mysterious. The mathematical stuff embedded in to the pyramid, it references pi hundreds of years before we discovered pi. The speed of light the polar inch showing the diameter of the earth, as well as using the polar inch, the diameter of the, of the pyramid is 365.24, 365.24, 365.24, the exact rotation of the earth, including leap year. Hmm. That's why there's so much mystery. So we're going to use the Great Pyramid as a metaphor, really, for the culture of Egypt versus the culture of the Bible. And I want to look at how we can choose between the the Great Pyramid of Death with the Egyptians' Book of the Dead and their focus on the death and how to defeat death, and what God brings in through Israel and Judaism and Christianity, which is the Greater Pyramid of Life. 
It's going to be a choice we all have. Should we choose the great pyramid of death or the greater pyramid of life? To do that, we're going to look at three pyramids today. We're going to ask ourselves, is there really a next life? It seems like all cultures are obsessed with finding that next life. And yet, I saw an interview recently with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he talked about how at age 75, he is just not comfortable with death. He's had success, he's had fame, but he says, the one thing I can't get peace with is death. He says, but I know this for sure. The idea that we're going to see people again and that there's a heaven is a complete and total fantasy. Well, how do you know? How do the Egyptians know? How do the Christian view know? How does the Judaism know? How would we even know what's true? And I want to show you that God gave us some facts in history we can observe so that we could trust the facts about heaven that we can't observe. You don't have to check your brain at the door to ask the question of what happens when we die. All right, three pyramids. First pyramid we're going to look at is a pyramid of the past. And the question I think we're going to ask ourselves as, as the pyramid probably replicated from the Great Pyramid is come face to face with the Israelites is I wonder if I can be free. I wonder if God could get them free, and if so, I wonder if he can make me free. There's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and he's writing, and he makes a distinction between what's probably the Great Pyramid and the later pyramids. Here's what he says. Well, actually, I'll just say what he says. He says, the Great Pyramid was built years and years and years before the other pyramids. And he says, Josephus, that the Egyptians enslaved the Jewish people to build the pyramids that were in place at the time of the Bible's occurrence in Exodus. So, if that's true, then we have all these Egyptian culture enslaving this entire race. The Jewish people, they've now multiplied to about a million people, and they've been crying out, like you heard in that last song, crying out, we need help, crying out, we need the reign of justice, we need the reign of deliverance for 400 years. And in that, God shows up and speaks to a man named Moses, who's 80 years old, by the way, at the time he speaks to him. And here's what he says. Therefore, behold, Moses is God speaking. The cry of the children of Israel has come to me. I've seen their tears. Really, it's taking a while, but I've seen them. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver you from bondage. And the Lord said, and here's kind of a test. I want you to so know you can trust me in the future, we're going to do something right now that gives you evidence. And what's that? The Lord said, what do you got in your hand? And Moses is like, a staff, I'm a shepherd, a rod. God says, cast it to the ground. So he casts it on the ground, and suddenly it turns into a serpent. And Moses fled from it. It was an Egyptian cobra, most likely. And the Lord said to him, no, no, don't flee from it. Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So first of all, I would not recommend picking up snakes ever. But if you're going to pick up a snake, you try and grab it by the back of the neck. That way it can't get you to bite you. The worst place you'd ever want to pick up a snake is by the tail. It's got plenty of room to come around and bite you. Why is God doing magic tricks and asking Moses to pick up a snake stick? Well, he does. He reaches down, grabs the snake by the tail, most dangerous place, and it turns back into the rod or the staff. Now, this is why a lot of people don't believe the Bible. Like, Chad, you're trying to tell me to take this seriously, and you're telling me fantasy stories about magic tricks and rods turning into cobras and vice versa. 
Well, I'll just say this. If there really is a supernatural God who really is intervening in history, as the Bible claims, shouldn't he be able to do some supernatural things? Wouldn't it be a bigger problem if God shows up? He's like, well, you know, I can't really do much, but uh, imagine your stick was a, a snake because it'll work with this illustration I'm doing, and now switch it back. I know it's philosophically reasonable that a supernatural God should do supernatural things. But what, what is the real question here is why is God using a snake stick? Like in the Bible, isn't like snake the bad guy? I don't remember like the snake in the garden or something. The reason God is using a snake stick is because he's speaking to the culture that Moses has grown up in, the Egyptian culture. And the Egyptian culture, that's what you see. If you don't know your Egyptian mythology, I'll give you a quick little background specifically on snake gods. Here's three of them. There's Wajit, good old Wajit. There's Buto, not Bluto, Buto. And there's Nahabka, which is probably pronounced exactly correct. So notice in the Egyptian mythology, they almost always mixed a human being with an animal. And you see how snakes were a major part of that. And so when Moses was living in Egypt, he knew you don't mess with the, with the tyrants who are coming after us because they're protected by the gods. And the gods that protect Egypt are those gods. So if you ask Moses, I'm scared to death of going against Pharaoh because he's protected by the gods. Have you ever seen a Pharaoh's uh, headrest, right? What's it look like? It's designed to look like a cobra with the sides coming out, and there's always a snake on top. See the snake? That's Wajit. And so Wajit was the snake that defended the god. And so you can't come and tell Moses, Moses, you can't come and tell Pharaoh what to do because Wajit's going to get you. So God is giving a very practical exposure therapy if you're into psychology. You're scared of, of fear? Let me show you right now. You don't have to be scared of Wajit or Pharaoh. The thing you're most scared of, the god that protects him, is an Egyptian cobra and I'm going to show you that I'm in control of what you're about to step into. Oh. In fact, then God lays out a series of ten plagues, which seems so random. we got some lice over here. we got some cattle over here. How about uh, the Nile into blood? That sounds kind of nice. But each one of these is strategically designed to show the Egyptians that their gods aren't able to do what they say they can do. So let me give you an example. I'll just give you a few of them. There was a guy named Hoppy in Budo, and one of the things that Hoppy did is that Hoppy's job was to protect the Nile. And so when God turns the water to blood, it's saying, listen, I'm in control of water, Hoppy's not. There's another guy, look at this guy, see how he looks like a frog? He's got a frog face? So that's good old Hecht. So Hecht was the frog god. So God has this frog plague, frogs are suddenly all over the place, ribbit, 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 ribbit. Hoppy can't keep the frogs in place. The frogs dying all over the place. There's another one. Here is uh, this guy. Looks like a steer. God has a disease on all the cattle. It's not like he's mad at the cattle. He needs some hamburger. He's trying to show that Menevis, the god of the Egyptians, isn't a real god who can't protect the cattle. Then the god of darkness. You may have heard of this as a Marvel series recently. references Horus and Amnon, the god of the moon, the god of light, and the god of darkness. They, they don't control light. So God's whole goal here is to show the people of Egypt, many of them are going to leave with, with uh, Moses, by the way, that he is the one true God, and the gods they serve are leading them into bondage, and he wants to deliver his people. Like, okay, well, Chad, maybe, that's, maybe it's interesting, maybe it's not, I don't know, you're talking about a bunch of snake sticks, that's really strange. What does this have to do with my life? I don't have any snakes in my life, I don't mess with any snake sticks, that's kind of like crazy religious people do. Why are we talking about this? Here's why. Because the principle 
the gods trying to deliver the Egyptians from their gods, and Israel from their bondage applies to us today. Really? Let me give you a quote from a, a philosopher living in New York who died recently. His name's Tim Keller. Let's think about this together. He says, thus every person, religious or not, is worshiping or prioritizing something in your life. There is something in your life that everything else revolves around. He calls them idols or pseudo-saviors. They're where you get your peace, where you get your comfort, where you get your sense of self-worth. That thing in your life is your God. But these things always enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them. Hey, I don't have as much money as I thought. My career's not as big as I, I, I hoped. My kids behaving, aren't behaving as well as they did, and I thought I was a good mom. Those things enslave you with guilt or anger if someone blocks them from us. Oh, I would have had a bigger promotion right now if so-and-so hadn't done this and done that and my boss hadn't, my company hadn't. Or fear if they are threatened. Or drivenness since we must have them and so we're never satisfied. I said I'd be satisfied here. I got there. I moved the goalpost. I'm not satisfied. I moved the goalpost. That's why these false gods or replacement gods enslave us. Now you're starting to see how maybe, oh, okay, I can see that fear, that guilt, that unsatisfied ambition in my life. Guilt, anger, and fear and drivenness are like fire that destroys us. Sin, missing the mark, is simply worshiping anything but Jesus. And the wages of that sin is you end up in slavery. So the goal God has with the Egyptians is the same way he has for us. Behind every fear in your life, fear of losing something, every guilt, every unsatisfied ambition, is some kind of replacement God, something you've put as number one in your life, and God wants to free you from that. doesn't mean it's not part of your life, but it no longer runs your life. It no longer drives your life. So here's a bunch of potential gods. All good things, by the way. Status, appearance, comfort, fame, my identity as a parent, my kid's behavior. But if these things become the number one thing in your life, you either crush you with guilt or it'll make you really, really proud and arrogant, but then you're never satisfied. What's next? What's next? What's next? God wants to deliver you from the unsatisfied slavery that comes when this becomes your number one thing. If this becomes your number two thing, underneath him, you can enjoy status. You can enjoy money. You can enjoy your kids when they behave and when they don't behave because it doesn't define you. I saw an interview with uh, Michael Jordan. It was on the Netflix uh, Save the Last Dance. And he just had the most fascinating thing. Let me read it to you. It was just so amazing. He says, you know, everybody wants to be MJ. And being me for a day would be a lot of fun. But being me for a year is very, very hard. He says, you know, I get mobbed when I go anywhere. I go to a hotel, I have a crowd all around me. I go to the gym, the press surrounds me. You know, my favorite thing to do is to go home and sit on a couch. That's what I love and watch TV. To just sit on the couch and finally have some quiet. Then he says, if I had known my fame and celebrity and success would push me into a small room with the doors closed, maybe... I would have thought differently about it. So sometimes the things we think will make our life happy end up enslaving us. And God loves us enough to have us not be driven. Driven by our technology, driven by our need to be productive. And that's why this first wonder is, can I be free? And God says, you can. The, many of the Egyptians go out from the Exodus as well as the Israelites. 
Because God wants everyone to be free. Which moves us to our next pyramid. Let's look at the pyramid of the Passover. This is where it gets really interesting. Because this is, I think, where the Egyptians and the Israelites' view of life and death really come in clear contrast. I wonder if life can be passed over or can be defeated. So let's take the, uh, the Egyptian view first. So when you look at the Great Pyramid, it has got an unbelievable and interesting setup, and there's a hundred views on why it's all there. So here's one uh, Jewish uh, or Egypt, Egyptian scholar. He says, the pyramids and the Book of the Dead, which we have copies of, they basically are reproduced in the stone. So what you hear in the Book of the Dead in words is what you're seeing here. How do you ascend to heaven? So there's a pathway that goes down to the pit, number five. There's a narrow pathway, number six, that goes up to the king's chamber, number ten. And there's all kinds of intricate little ways and symbolism in there. So what does the Book of the Dead say? It says if you want to know how to get free from this life into the next, it's one question you'd ask yourself. Book of the Dead, hieroglyphics always show a, a, a balancing scale. And on this side is your heart. See your heart right there. And on this side is a feather. That's a feather. If your heart weighs the same as Mott, as a god, Mott's feather, you get in. How do I get a heart that weighs like a feather? No burden, no regret, no doing bad things. Well, like, what if I've already done a few bad things? Can you make up for it? Well, you don't really know, but the goal at least is have a heart that weighs the same as Mott's feather and you can get in. And then you pass into the next life if you get mummified properly and your, your, your uh, organs are removed properly. That's how you get and defeat death. So here's where you see a distinction now between Christianity, Egyptian mythology, and atheism, kind of three different worldviews. How do they view res- what happens when you die? If you're an Egyptian, when you die, you remain the same. So you see all the Egyptians have, as they're dying, they have their medicine with them, they have their canes with them, they have... You actually go into the next life with all your ailments, all your pains. You remain the same in the next life. Christianity, no, no. You resurrect to life. You get a brand new body. You like your body now? Imagine with no more pains and no more aches. You resurrect to life. Now, in atheism, you rot to death. Those are three distinct views of what happens when you die. Now, what's the purpose of life? If you're an Egyptian, you live so that your heart can weigh the same as Mott's feather. If you're a Christian, you trust God to provide Passover for death because it's coming to all of us. But you can start living your eternal life now knowing death's been defeated. And if you're an atheist, you would say, well, live your short life now and try and leave a legacy. That'd be the purpose of life. And, you know, three generations will forget all about you, but at least try and make a big mark while you can. Then, how do you solve the problem of death? For the Egyptians, very similar to the Hindus, you die you're reborn, you come back again, you die reborn. So death is kind of like, oh, not again. Oh, yep, didn't quite make it. Not again, didn't quite make it. Not again. That's kind of the, the Hindu or the Egyptian view on death. Now, the Christian view is, when is death going to be dealt with? No more death for anybody. The Bible says not yet. That's frustrating. It is. But there is a yet coming. That God will one day come back and fix this world with no more death and no more pain. And then lastly, what is atheism's answer to the problem of death and suffering? Not ever. Evil's never going to be dealt with. Good is never going to be fully and finally rewarded. Now, you can believe whatever you want, Horizon, but we're trying to share why we've come to the conclusions we have about God and the Bible. There's a lot of hope and reality in this particular view of how life works. Now, is there any evidence for it? So these are the different views. What's the evidence? Well, let me take you 
to the passage that says what God did to deliver his people from Egypt. So the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So wherever they were, if this is true, we should find in history something where they're out of Egypt when this occurs. And they had to go around a big wilderness area before they get to the Red Sea. All right, so we're looking for out of Egypt, wilderness, Red Sea. And I want you to speak to Israel and tell them that they're supposed to turn and camp right before this weird place called Pi Haroth. And they're going to camp right by the sea. A million to two million people have to fit on this spot. And Pharaoh will say, huh, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So wherever they are, they are closed in. There's no way out. All right? So that's what we're going to look at. So as we look at that, is there any evidence for this? There's like five views of the Exodus. Let me give you evidence you can look at your phone today or you can follow along with me if you want. Here it is. Let's go to the map. If you pull up a map, Google map, you will see Egypt here to the left, Israel to the right. This is the Red Sea. So the Red Sea, they could cross it here. That'd be really hard to do. It's a long walk. They could cross it here, 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 or here. Lots of theories. I'm going to show you my theory and why it supports the evidence. I think they crossed here. So let's go to the map. Let me show you exactly what you find in this area of the Red Sea. There is one beach. And that beach is very unique. It's called Nubia Beach. You can find it on Google Maps. What's interesting about the Red Sea is when scuba divers have gone underwater, everything to the north of it is like a mountain range. Even if you did clear the water, there's no way you could walk up and down it with kids and, and elderly people. It's just, it'd be like mountain climbing. Everything to the south of Nubia Beach is mountain climbing. But the one area in the Red Sea that is flat enough that if you did remove the water, you could actually walk across it is between here and here. Let's go to the map. Let's zoom in. Now, all this is on Google Map. As you zoom in on Nubia Beach, you get to see the topography. Sure enough, surrounded by wilderness, surrounded by mountains, one way in. You are trapped. That beach is big enough to hold two million people. And you can imagine why Egypt thought, we got them. They're coming down this path right here. They're all trapped. Red Sea, mountains, no way out. All right? But notice over here on the left, also on Google Maps, Solomon's Pillar. All right? Let's go to the map. Let me show you what Solomon's Pillar is. Solomon's Pillar, it will show you a picture. There's lots of pictures uploaded on your Google Map of what in the world is Solomon's Pillar. It's actually labeled Solomon's Pillar. That pillar says on it, this was erected by Solomon, around 1000 B.C., to commemorate the crossing of the Red Sea at this location by Moses, 1500 B.C. Huh, there it is. Well, if it's true, then if they crossed over, then as you cross over, then supposedly God brought down the law from the sky and gave it to them. There should be some kind of mountain you could get a law from. Well, let's go to the map. So if you take your Google map and you kind of zoom over across and about the other side, look, there's a mountain range, and to this day it is called Law's Mountain. Huh. And there's a giant altar at the bottom of that mountain which has pictures of a golden calf. Very identical to what the Bible says happened. While Moses was getting the law, they were worshiping the golden calf. Then God says that despite their rebellion, he decided to provide for them. They couldn't drink. They were thirsty, so he wanted to give them water. But how do you, you don't like have a little fountain for two million people. You got a massive fountain. So let's go to the map. If you zoom out just a little bit to the left of there, you see a gigantic split rock. God says he split a rock and provide water for two million people. 50 foot tall, split rock of Horeb. It's in Google map. Water, there's erosion marks all over the place, even this many years later. Now, 
do I know for sure this is the place it happened? No, but that's an awful lot of evidence. That's not just believe it because the Bible says it. So many scuba divers have said, let's check this out. Let's go under the water, and they find there's not a lot of coral in that section of the Red Sea. Except between these two beaches, there's really unique coral they've never seen anywhere in the world. So join me, short little clip of 90-minute documentary of what scuba divers found right between those two beaches. Let's watch. For more than 20 years, divers and explorers from three continents, each intrigued by clues linking the Gulf of Aqaba and the biblical Yam Suf, have come to Nueva Beach seeking possible evidence of an Israelite crossing. When we dive and when we film at the Nueva location, we look for certain structures and you try to look for 90 degree angles or circular objects. We like structures, so that is what you scan for, so to speak, when you dive. There are situations where you see something that looks like an axle, a hub, something that looks like a wheel, and you say to yourself, this is not a coral reef, this is a coral growth on an artifact. And that is what's different to me when I compare corals at other locations around the world. Since the earliest explorations at Nueva, one distinctive type of formation has often been identified on the seafloor. A slender, table-like structure, sometimes standing on end, with a coral-encrusted base, a straight shaft, and a circular top. It's a 90-degree angle, a right angle, between something that looks like an axle and the wheel. And you can see this in different varieties, and it looks very different from normal coral growth. And uh, it is like a man-made structure with a coral growth on it. Now, when we have been able to go back and forth with a remote control camera, we can repeatedly see that these strange structures we are looking for are there, not at one place, but you see them again and again and again. So he goes on and says, you don't find these structures in that shape anywhere else in the world, and you don't even find it in the Red Sea, but north of it and south of it, just in this scattered section. Anyway, maybe you want to dig more into that. Three ways you can do that. That video came from the John 10.10 project. You can look it up online, John 10.10. Click on Evidence for Faith. There's a whole documentary there on all kinds of subjects. Or there's a whole video series on it, about 90 minutes. I've watched all of them. One's called Patterns of Evidence. Were the Jews really in Egypt? Gives the case for that in an amazing way. They did a follow-up, Patterns of Evidence, called The Red Sea Miracle, which has all more documentary, 90 minutes of going into all the details of what they found. So... Do I know for sure it happened there? No, but that's a lot of facts to sync up that God delivered them from the Red Sea and then Pharaoh kept chasing down. He crushed them back. That's where you might find a bunch of chariots. Which speaks to the idea of Passover. So that whole thing we just described, delivering from the gods, delivering from Egypt, is called the Jewish festival of Passover. And here's how the Bible describes it. When your children say to you, what do you mean by the service, the Passover service, you shall say, this is the Passover service of the Lord, who passed over the houses of children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So here's the message, the main message of the Bible. Get lost in anything else, here's the main message of the Bible. 
we don't do the right thing. And if we get what we deserve for our unkindness and our pettiness and our selfishness, we'd be in trouble. We're guilty of death or justice. And so God told his people, I will provide a way that you can have death pass over you. And I want to show it in a way that you can real tangibly see it so you can believe in when you finally die that this is true. So they were to take a lamb, and that lamb was to uh, come into their house for several days, so you kind of got to know the lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb, and that lamb would die. You'd have to kill the lamb as part of the Passover feast that you're going to eat. You would take the blood of the lamb, and you'd put it on the doorpost of your house. And God says, when justice comes by, when death comes by, if you trusted someone else's perfect death on your behalf, death will pass over you. And if you trust me to pass over you in this life, then the same way if you trust my son Jesus, the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb who died for you, when the final judgment comes in your life, death will pass over you. And that's the main message of the Bible. You don't defeat death by being mummified. You defeat death by having a pass over a perfect person who balances the scale. Which leads us to our third pyramid. That's where we're going to end. Kind of a short one here. But I wonder if the world will ever be fixed. When you look at the new state, don't you wonder that? Is the world ever going to be fixed? Here's how the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. It says, at the end of time, God's going to fix everything. It was not yet, but it's finally come. And the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descends out of the heaven from God. And look at the dimensions here, if you're a geometry person. Its length, breadth, and height are all equal. So if you're a geometry person, you've got two shapes that meet those qualifications. A cube or a pyramid. That there is this great cube or pyramid of God, a pyramid of life that comes down. It's God's kingdom coming to earth. Christians don't believe as much as you go to heaven as eventually heaven comes to earth and fixes this place. And what's it going to be like when that greater pyramid comes to earth? God will wipe away every tear. No more crying, no more betrayal, no more war. The tears from your eyes will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There'll be no more pain. Well, who doesn't want some of that? I want some of that. So we began today by saying, which pyramid are you going to trust? The great pyramid of death? Israel, the Israel talked about choosing life. Deuteronomy says, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. Yeah, justice is coming for you, but I've made a way that it can pass over you. Choose life by letting me be your forgiver and pass over. How do you do that? He says, you learn how to love the Lord your God, to obey his voice, and you just cling to him. And I'll take care of death for you. You don't defeat death through mummification. You defeat death through Passover. And when you know that's true in the future, you can start living your forever life now. I don't think anyone has demonstrated that to me better than my friend Justin. And you guys got to hear me talk about Justin several times, but his story just keeps coming up. Justin attending our church for many, many years. He, he came in not really wanting to come to church. He got a spiritual interest, loved coming to our services, found out he had ALS, and he had a certain time frame that he knew he was dying. But while he knew his mortal life was coming to an end, his spiritual life, he knew Jesus was his Passover and that God would raise him from the dead after his mortal body died. And I've told that story before, but the story continues because he 
kept living like he was dying. He kept living today with this eternal kind of life. He planned out when he was gone. He knew his daughter really wanted to go to a, a Taylor Swift concert, so he bought tickets in advance before he died. He has other things planned at certain years and mile marks in her life, years in the future, because he said, I want to live my eternal life now while I can. And he put his life in order financially and priority-wise. So his wife just came up to me, I think it was two weeks ago, and she said, hey, I got something from Justin for you. I did his funeral three months ago, four months ago. He's like, yeah, part of how he set things out, here's a check for Horizon. He wanted to thank the work God has done at this place to prepare him for when he faced death. I was just humbled. A guy who's living his forever life now. So I invite the band to come out. This next song is a song I love. It's, it's a song that kind of reminds me in, in a world filled with regret or guilt or just wishful thinking, I hope I can get to heaven, I wish I can get to heaven. What if you knew that you're going to get to heaven? Let's get that out of the way. I know I'm going to heaven because somebody perfect died for me. Now, getting that out of the way, let's start living now. Like life matters. Let's live now, prioritizing. I'm not letting my career drive me. I'm not letting my kid's behavior drive me. I'm not letting my need for celebrity or fame drive me. I am so coming from a place of contentment that I'm at one with my creator that I can enjoy the things around me and live every day knowing I'm dying but God has work for me to do what if we could prioritize our life knowing that the time is short but also know we don't have to be afraid of death because it's just one step to an eternal life maybe you want some of that you want to have that spirit of live like you're dying and, and knowing you don't have to be afraid of death and knowing it's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger says, it's all just an illusion, that it can really be true and there's evidence to back up what God has done. Let me lead us in a prayer and I'll tell you how we're trying to live like we're dying as a church. Maybe you want to say to God, God, I want to be free from the good things that have been controlling my life but enslaving me with guilt or fear or drivenness. God, I trust you to be my Passover. Thank you for dying for me, that justice would pass over me, that death would pass over me. I invite you into my life and teach me how to be free. In Jesus' name.